With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Oh, Judge Brown? Yes. Well, hold on. Hello? Yeah. Go ahead. We'll call you right back. Okay. Doug Brown? Yes, sir. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm ready. Go ahead. All right, we're talking about Ali. Yes, sir. They had a saying they used to say about King Arthur, as in Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table the once and future king. Ali was and is the champ, the once and future champ. And he was bigger than the fight ring we saw on TV. And the real one that he was fighting in was harder to see but not to feel. It was the big one, the whole of the world. I suppose we've come to sense that eventually every punch he landed was landed for us. I suppose they were even landed for the larger benefit of the opponents that he punched. Every blow we saw him take, we felt kind of like it was taken for us. He was the champion, our champion. In the ring, he was our champion. In the world, he was too. It was a rare thing. He was a righteous man who was a formidable man, the champ, the real champ. He was a gladiator for our cause and a holy man on top of it, too. Ali was ours. We all felt we knew him, even if we had never met him. He was family. He was our big brother. We lost him for the here and now. But I guess his spirit hasn't been lost to ours. It still fights on. It's in us and for us. You know, so it's sort of a rest in peace, great one. We all came out on top by you being here. You know, that's the kind of thing that I think of when I think about him. Yes, sir. You ever, you ever get a chance to meet Ali in person? I did. How was it? Okay. A long time ago. And he showed up on campus to speak. And after he got through, he went down into the village, Westwood Village, which is outside of UCLA. And the police wound up having to block off a street. And he kept talking for four solid hours. Wow. Everybody paid. What can I say? Wrapped attention. And he not only had the restaurant where we had taken him filled up, he had the sidewalk filled up 
and the street was full of people listening to him. Wow. So this is when you was a, a student at UCLA, this happened back in the 60s? Yeah. This was when he lost his license to box, like, during that period? It might have been right in that period, yes, or right after it got restored. I also have had benefit of one of my very best friends in life was his personal bodyguard for a couple of years. And I think for three or four after that, he was one of his advisors. Wow. So... What I used to do is like, what was your thoughts about him taking a stand against the Vietnam War at that time? What did you think about it? It was the right thing to do. Okay. And also, I want to ask you this as well. I think it's very interesting, like, the way they got the funeral set up, uh, that Bill Clinton is doing the actual eulogy. They said that Ali wanted Bill Clinton to be the eulogy. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, how many athletes have had a eulogy delivered by the head of state for a major government. Not many, I can think of. <laughs> I don't think you they uh. did report on him one time, and they called him probably the most recognizable and popular man in the world. See, he belongs to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were narrow-minded people that were against what he was doing. There was mm-hmm. a stark of racism in the whole thing that they did to him. And he claimed conscientious exempt. Uh, uh, he came conscientious. Objective status. Mm-hmm. And that was not uncommon, but it was racist to deny it to him. Mm-hmm. Islam is a viable and important religion. And Louisville, Kentucky was in the South, and the draft board down there and the U.S. Attorney's Office down there was what it was. But mm-hmm. ultimately got vindication when he went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And by that time, the Vietnam War had become very odious, very odious to the public. Wow. So what are your thoughts? Like, you know, I I read somewhere they said... Uh, it, was, it was like he was being a prophet. Okay. In other words, he expressed early what most of the country came to feel some years later. Mm-hmm. He showed the courage in the real world by taking a moral stand as he had taken physical stands in the ring. Yes. Now, I had an interesting experience related to this uh, thing with Ali. Uh, One time, George Foreman was doing something on the lot where I did my show, 
and he visited me in the green room. And I guess we talked on and off for about an hour and a half. And he had the greatest admiration for Ali. And the conversation was, I say, enriched when he recognized my friend who worked as an executive on my show at the time as being Ali's bodyguard. Mm. So it was very enlightening. to hear the expressions of friendship and admiration that Foreman delivered about Ali. And respect, too. Mm As far as like you, you believe that Ali was the greatest boxer that ever lived. As far as like as a boxer, do you feel like he was the greatest? Look, one of my passions at one time was keeping up with boxing, particularly heavyweight. Mm-hmm. Back when Ali beat the gorilla, mm-hmm. they had fights on TV. So. I saw that first fight where he knocked out Lister. Mm -hmm. I saw the second fight with Lister. I Mm -hmm. saw the fight with Patterson. Mm -hmm. I think I saw every one of his fights, and then eventually they started having a thing. It wasn't paid for per view, but they started having it carried live in theaters. And I can remember I'd go to Down Down Theaters in L.A., and mm-hmm. watch every one of the fights he had. I saw the Thriller in Manila. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I saw he and Frazier. And by the way, they became friends. Mm-hmm. I saw when he fought for him. He was great. I used to watch. film clips of Joe Lewis, Mm -hmm. and I've seen a bunch of them of Jack Johnson way back at the turn of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. but there was nobody like Ali, and he put style into the game. Mm. He made it something from just a bunch of people slugging it out into the ring. And he turned it into theater. Mm-hmm. And he turned the theater into a stage to make a point. He made himself into a phenomenon. And then we ultimately heard the phenomenon talk about social and political justice. I want to ask you this about Ali. I think it's interesting you talk about the theater aspect of it. You name all the heavyweights that he fought, some of the best of all time. They helped there real high. Now, he had a nickname for uh, Sonny Liston, called him the bear. He called, I think, Floyd Patterson the rabbit. He called George Foreman the zombie. But he called uh, Joe Frazier the gorilla. And I think he you know, came to regret that because I started looking at documentaries and stuff. And uh, it's, you know, you know, like back, it took it real hard. Frazier family took it real hard. But go ahead. What was happening at the time? 
and mm-hmm. she had a collaborator. Okay. And uh, what's his name? He was the sports announcer who was also uh, the lawyer. That Howard Cassell. Howard Cassell. Yeah, Howard okay. Cassell. They were good mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. And the two of them worked the fight game. So it didn't degenerate into what happens with professional wrestling. But Mm -hmm. from the way it used to be, it became something else. It transcended the combat in the ring, and it became almost the equivalent of a, a, a Roman gladiatorial event where the emperor showed up and, uh, you know, the Roman Senate was there, and it was a state event. That's why you've got Bill Clinton. You know, mm. if you were somebody who came of age in the 60s, Ali was the man. He owned the 60s. Mm. Like, we had come off of peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations relative to civil rights. And then here was a black man that was taking everybody and everything on in the ring, and he was a fighter. But he fought outside the ring, and he took conscientious stands on what was right outside of the ring. I am like probably everybody that saw him fight in the 60s of the opinion that we never saw Ali deliver his greatest fight because he was banned from doing it during his prime years. He is the best fighter there has ever been in the modern ring. And we missed the best of Ali when it came to fighting, but we saw the best of Ali when it was about being a conscientious man. Mm-hmm. So it was one of these fights. <laughs> yes, okay. because that's how he became Ali for the world. Right. Mm. And then there are other things, like one fight he had, he had a broken jaw in part through the fight. Mm-hmm. He was a big guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was big. He's one of these guys who would walk through the door and the sunlight would be blocked out. <laughs> wow. Like you just, so, I think it's, go ahead, sorry. It's just, go ahead. I want to ask you this question. I'm thinking about this. Like, you know, uh, black heavyweights matter. You know, you, you name Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, and Muhammad Ali. They all had social significance during that era. And I'm looking at boxing right now. We just had Floyd Mayweather. But can boxing survive without a viable black heavyweight? Can it survive? Well, what I'm noticing is that boxing, to an extent, has been supplanted by cage fighting. Right. Everything goes. Mm-hmm. It's more violent. It carries the spirit of the fight. 
into a real fight. People get hurt. And unlike a lot of modern contact for uh, sports, it acknowledges that that's part of the attraction. This stuff is serious physical violence. And it has its attractions. It's not one of these sports where they have nicened it up and people that get paid a whole lot of money become such valuable assets that they have to be protected to the point where the game is not as vigorous as it once was. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how do you think Ali, in terms of, you know, it's funny, I uh, saw an article recently. Uh, somebody wrote an article said that Ali was the greatest anti-white boxer of all time. And I'm thinking to myself, Ali, the person who taught him how to train was a white police officer. And the people that sponsored him were the Louisville sponsoring group, and they were white men. Ali was not anti-white. Okay. Pro-black people. Right. The Ali was pro-humanity. Mm-hmm. But is it scary, though, that people in this age of uh, information and technology, that, that people could take that narrative and make it like that's a, that's a real narrative, I believe? Like, I'm just concerned about how his legacy is being played out right now before the his world. His legacy is not bad. You've got a former president, eight-year, two-term president in the United States, whose wife is the current front runner for the Democrats in the presidential race, who outside of the damage done to him by the far right, is probably one of the more effective U.S. presidents. I would rank him along with, I think, the three best presidents we may have had are FDR, LBJ, and Lyndon Baines. uh, That's Lyndon Baines Johnson. Mm -hmm. And... Muhammad, not Muhammad, and uh, uh, Bill Clinton. Let me ask you this. You think if, uh, if Muhammad Ali never got Parkinson's disease, would he have become a political leader? Like, could he have been elected to office, like even to president? Why would he need to be elected for office? His forum was the whole world. Mm. When he showed up, people paid attention. When he mm-hmm. talked, they paid rapt attention. See, he was an entertainer, too. And a lot of what you hear is his little short phrases and short poems were just for the benefit of five-second sound bites going to entertainment. But if you ever heard him talk, remember, as I earlier referred to the matter, he talked for four hours solid. He didn't. He didn't repeat himself. And these are people at a prestigious university, a whole street full of them, hanging on every word. Wow. It's not bad for a D-minus student. From, you know, yeah, it's very interesting. Wow. He just wasn't devoted to being a student in terms of academia, but he was a student of people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what that whole rope-a-dope thing was? It was brilliant psychology. 
his mm. opponent was hyper-aggressive, prided himself on his power. It's 110 degrees, and it's nighttime. So let mm. his opponent use his proclivity to put everything into it, wear himself out so he lost his edge, and then take him out. Mm-hmm. See, that's psychology. So really, if we study Ali, we can learn a lot about how to succeed in this world outside of the ring, right? We can learn a lot. You know, yeah. folks, if we study Ali, we can learn a lot about how to win. Not win. Learn a lot about what's right. Mm-hmm. See, what he did most of the time when they interviewed him, and it wasn't just somebody with a microphone stuck in his place, face, while he had on boxing gloves or was going to a weigh-in, he was talking about people and how they should interact with each other. He would deliver it in a humorous and erudite fashion. Wow. It was like something else. He was like, I mean, when you, it's like, it's kind of, it's like interesting to me when I look at Ali and I study him now as we look and reflect upon him. He really knew who he was before he even converted to Islam. He thought he had a great understanding of who he was. He had a lot of knowledge himself from an early age. Yes. Yeah. Where do you he think that comes from? Where you, I mean, where, where did that come from? I mean, where do you think it came from? At 12 years old. He mm-hmm. had the confidence of winning. He was in a position where in Louisville, racist as it was at the time, he transcended his position. He got mm-hmm. picked by white people not to be a Mandingo fighter, but because he was good. Mm-hmm. And because he was good and he had a good heart, he did what he did to spread that around. See, there's one thing about being a man. There are great men who have great abilities and great resources that ordinary men can't access. Mm-hmm. But ordinary men can have the same heart. So if you try for that heart and you get anywhere near it, you are a man. See, Ali showed us the heart. Ali was brilliant. He could understand people in the most profound and fundamental way. Mm-hmm. He spread wisdom. When you heard him, you heard somebody talking to you with good sense. See, I, I've never heard a preacher in a church spread such good sense and astute observations about humanity and what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. When he got going, he could rival Richard Pryor as a stand-up comedian. Mm. This is interesting to me. There's a couple of things I've been noticing uh, since Ali passed. Um, I know you heard about the incident up in Cincinnati with the gorilla, right? About getting killed to protect the boy. Yes. And I just think it's fascinating to know that, you know, almost a week later that Ali died. You know, his biggest rival was Joe Fraser, who he referred as the gorilla. So I just think well, it's kind of interesting to notice that. Well, yeah, I don't know that. <laughs> A connection. <laughs> I don't know if there's a connection. But let me uh-huh. just say this. Ali and Frazier became good friends. Mm-hmm. 
And interestingly enough, years later, Ali's daughter, one of his daughters, and one of Frazier's daughters fought each other in a women's boxing match. I remember that, yeah. Speaking of which, I sat next to one of his wives at a table. For Ali's wife? When I leave? Okay. And she was a very beautiful woman and very, very intelligent. Was it Veronica? Was it Veronica Porsche by any chance? Was that her? I can't remember her name. She was Islamic. When I talked to her, this is after I got my show going. Okay. And she was a very educated woman. Mm-hmm. Wow. What do you think about the situation with his son? Have you heard about that, Ali Junior? The uh, financial hardship he's going I through have, in Chicago. I have no idea what that's about. Young okay. man make his way, and he's got a heavy burden to to meet if he wants to catch up with his great father. But I, just, I want to ask you, yeah, go ahead. Everybody. But, you know, speaking, you want to talk about coincidence. Let's forget the gorilla. Okay. But CNN reported this. They noted at the Ali Center up in Louisville, Mm-hmm. They had to send some beekeepers over there because the place was swarming with bees for two days for some strange reason. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's amazing. One of his kin reported that there were butterflies all in the shower when she went in. Wow. Chicago had some interesting local news where a place he liked to hang out was just infested with bees for two days. Wow. Over the weekend after he died. You know, float like a butterfly, sing like, like a bee. Wow. So he's trying to tell us that he's still here forever I leave. Wow. That's amazing. I don't go that way. But it's an interesting coincidence. Yes, <laughs> sir. A lot of things. It's been a strange year, though. Would you agree? It's been a really interesting year in terms of how things have been playing out so far. It's only halfway through. A lot of things have happened. Yeah. One good thing is this election. Okay. I have not seen this much energy out there in a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't appreciate the negativism of Trump. Okay. But what he has done is he has jumped into the fray where people are sick and tired of everybody involved in politics trying to be nice, nasty, apologizing every time they offend somebody, trying to be all this, that, and the other, and doing nothing for the people. So when Trump gets in somebody's face, People love it. When Bernie Sanders started galvanizing people by saying, hey, I've got an alternative, you know, something that I'm not concerned with is on the level of what you think is realistic. In other words, realism being equated with his followers with, look, what you're trying to do is keep it down so you can keep on doing what you're doing for somebody that's got you in their back hip pocket, not for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. If I could do it this way, I'd say right now in the world of politics, the Republican Party has a rank and file that would eat by preference at Cracker Barrel. The Democratic Party is a rank and file that would probably try and eat at Red Lobster or Logan's Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. The Republican hierarchy would probably try to eat in a private club. And the Democratic hierarchy would probably try to go to a vegan, trendy restaurant. (laughs) So... People just are, I think, very fed up with politics as usual. And there is an old saying, to consistently do something in a consistent fashion and to have a consistently bad result is the classic definition of insanity. Yes, sir. I'm glad that between these two, Sanders and Trump, you have gotten a lot of people on both sides of the aisle fired up and anxious to do politics. Mm. They want to get re-engaged and it is more interesting to them than, say, watching some of the entertainment distractions. Right, right. You think that Donald Trump crossed the line with the judge and some of his Mexican heritage, like he didn't trust him to uh, preside over his uh, Trump University hearing? Was that over the you line? Know, you know what? My sense of this is I'm a supporter of the First Amendment, mm-hmm. and I am very much fed up with everybody being so thin-skinned and delicate that they can't take the heat. You put yourself in the public eye, judge, governor, president, congressman, state representative, state or U.S. senator, mayor, councilman, commissioner, and, you know, you are where the people are supposed to be able to shoot at you. You're aware everything comes together. It is not a polite process. People die in gas chambers. People lose their earning capacity. They lose their livelihoods. They lose their property. People die in foreign conflicts. People lose their homes. People don't get a higher education, you see, based on what your political leadership does. So the things that happen as a consequence of the actions they take are not nice. Therefore, the citizenry or anybody who is involved in the process need not be nice. See, they've got the Tea Party on the right, and they've got the Tea Time type on the left that want to be polite uh, and mannerable while they sip tea and stab each other in the back, a double cross folk, with a smile. 
the tea party type want to dump the tea in the, the harbor and create hell and be crude about it. But you see, there's still an accountability on both sides. You know, you've got a situation now with Hillary and Trump. And with Trump, you see the poison sitting in the bottle prominently labeled next to the plate. So you're watching to see that there's no poison being put in your plate and given, you know, along with serving that's given to you. With Hillary, the bottom line is she'll sneak it in with a dose of sugar and you won't find out you've had it slip to you until you find your poet. <laughs> yes, sir. So the point is, is do you want to see the poison or do you want to just feel the effects later on after you've been poised and can't do anything about it? And what is the poison? The poison is, is starting in the Reagan administration. There was an axe driven into the American system that severed the interest of the middle class from the upper class. And there is a great schism that has widened drastically since. It has widened badly under Bush. It widened even more so under Obama. And with Hillary, it's going to widen even more so. Her husband, Bill, formed a coalition with investment and financial banking institutions that was not typical of the Democratic Party, which up till that point had been sort of a watchdog over those entities. Now they're in everybody's bed, and the Democratic Party is no longer an instrument of protecting ordinary people. It is an instrument of advancement for the very rich, particularly in finance and investment banking. The Republican Party it promotes itself on manipulating xenophobic and negative tendencies in people mm. while the leadership is in the pocket of the very rich, but not necessarily the finance and investment banking bunch. With Trump, you don't know what you're getting because he's part of that privileged bunch, but he doesn't do investment or finance. He builds stuff, and he rents stuff, and he develops real estate. Investment banking and financial institutions, they don't build stuff. They don't make stuff. They gamble. And they make money off of the efforts of others. Mm. The government has abdicated its responsibility to control them because what they do has gotten so complex 
that ordinarily elected ordinarily uh, ordinary elected officials don't understand it, so they defer to these institutions that handle it with the government backing them up. You see, private enterprise is supposed to be about putting your own money up, running an enterprise, That's a- and either making it or not making it. When you run yourself off of tax dollars and they won't let you fail because you're perceived as being too big to fail and your failure is against the public interest so you are insured by the public, that's not the same thing. Yes, sir. Well, Judge Brown, I want to thank you, man. I want to continue this conversation very soon, but I always want to thank you for your time and uh, conveying your thoughts and opinions and uh, ideas about Muhammad Ali, his legacy, and the man, and also for sharing this very invaluable political insight you just offer us. Because I get a lot of feedback from people, and people are really enjoying what you are saying and the knowledge and wisdom that you are providing uh, to our people. Because right now it's info wars going on for real. And some people think you should run for national office. What's your thoughts about that? <laughs> You can't win in this, but you win America. Yeah. So there's a lot of people out there listening to what you're saying. Here's the last observation I want to make on Muhammad Ali, which makes him so profound. That's you right. Know, I like to deal with biology. And if mm-hmm. you watch chimpanzees, for example, mm-hmm. or even lions, they're fighting for dominance. Mm. And the alpha male takes on all comers for the privilege of doing what? Being the chimp between the rest of the pack and the leopard or the danger. Mm. Now, that means that the alpha male has got to be a fighter. The alpha male has got to be smart. So what do you get with Ali? There's no question. He's the best of the best when it comes to being a fighter. Mm -hmm. But he's also smart. Now, that gets way back in this atavistic thing of what it means to be human from when Ali was running around at the mouth of a cave. Mm -hmm. But in today's world, the alpha male doesn't get to be the alpha male by knocking people out. He gets it by cunning, but it's always something that gets us beat down inside when the baddest man in the valley is acting as your big brother. The baddest man in the valley is giving you wisdom and direction, and the baddest man in the valley is showing the way, not just to be brutal, but the righteous way. This is what it's all about on a higher place. That's as good as it gets. Thank you, Brother Judge, once again. In the words of Great Debelton, we love you madly. You keep on producing and pushing and being the people's advocate because you are the strongest man in the valley right now. (laughs) 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 They're trying to take me down, and I'm trying to resist it. Now, you ain't going down while the fight. You're a fighter as well. Very cunning, wisdom, uh, alpha male of the first order. That's you. Definitely that, sir. All right. I mean, I, mean, I want to ask you this before I go. Can we touch upon Ali Jr.? I just want to ask you, is it hard 
to be a son of a great man. You got sons. I mean, I look at Jim Brown. I look at uh, Miles Davis. Look at so many, uh, Dick Gregory. So many great men have sons. And maybe it's kind of hard to follow in your father's footsteps. I like what Michael Douglas did. You know, instead of trying to be Kirk Douglas, he found a niche, you know. But what if you were the son of a Michael Jordan or a Judge Joe Brown or anything like that? said to be difficult. Okay. Uh, sometimes the son can far overachieve relative to his daddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winston Churchill, quintessential English statesman of the 20th century. Right. His father was an English lord. His mother was an American heiress. By the way, you know, Winston Churchill had dual citizenship. He was an American, and he was an Englishman. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, okay. That's because if one of your parents is an American citizen, it doesn't make any difference where you're born in the world. You are an American citizen. If you're not born in the United States, one of its territories or protectorate, you can't run for president, even though it looks like Cruz did so. Mm-hmm. All right. You see, it's interesting. You've got uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a one-term president, not a great one, or even a particularly good one. And in mm-hmm. some those a two-term president was a lousy, sorry excuse for the office. Right. So, you know, it is what it is. Following behind daddy is a difficult thing. Always has been a problem. Mm. Anyway, I'll leave you with that. I don't know anything about Ali's son, so I can't say anything one way or the other. Yeah, I was reading an article in the uh, the Daily Mail. It's like some of the best news you get from overseas. And uh, they did an interview with him a couple of years ago. I know he's the, the son of Belinda, his second wife, and he's in Chicago right now. He's 43 years old, financial hardship. You know, he lives in, a, in an apartment that was given to him by his uh, father-in-law, I believe. But he's, uh, he's a family man. He's got a wife and two kids. And he's taking care of his, uh, his mother's father, who has, also has Parkinson's. And he just talking about all the hardships. He ain't spoke to his father within two years. He knows a lot of that has to do with his illness, but he just thinks that his father should have better prepared. I don't think about that. And what I would say for sons Mm -hmm. is a word up. You don't know what your father went through until you walked in his shoes. Right, right. Mm Thank you, Judge Brown, thank you so much for that insight. Uh, like I said, the words of Duke Elton, we love you madly, and we keep on producing and pushing because you are our big brother in the valley. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Like I said, I fight. Keep on fighting. Fight to, to your last older. breath. Yes, sir. I'm getting older. I just need to make a legacy so people can keep on doing the good stuff. Yes, sir. I believe you have made a legacy because, like, Ali, you, you understand the value of investing in people. And that's how you have a living legacy. Yeah. Yes, sir. God bless you, Brother Judge. And I'll talk to you very, uh, very soon.
All right, brother. Thank you. All right.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.